Well, hello, my name is Matt Stefan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Menlo Church, and I'm really glad you're here today. Uh, we're talking about the gift. It is the gift of Jesus's presence with us, and it's given in such a way that we don't deserve it. We can't earn it, simply a gift. And it is sometimes described as the greatest gift ever given to a human being, and it has been extended to every single one of us. Everybody at all of our campuses, everybody participating online, everybody who might be new for the very first time in church or maybe new to uh, the Menlo Church community, everybody at every church, every human being alive, every human being who has ever lived offered the presence of this Jesus. And especially at Christmas time, we are aware of the gift being offered to us. And I want to suggest today that there is a way we can live our lives where we are aware of this gift of Jesus's presence with us. In fact, there's a way that we can be aware of it in every moment of our lives. I want to suggest that if we slow down the pace of our lives, we will be increasingly aware of the presence of Jesus given to us as a gift in quite a satisfying way. But I have an intuition that you are not going to like hearing about slowing your life down. So I'm not going to talk about that for about 10 minutes in this sermon. And I'm not going to talk about that for about 10 minutes in this sermon because of a really specific Bible reason. There's a passage in Acts chapter 7 that is really relevant to people like me in moments like this. In Acts chapter 7, there's a man called Stephen, and he is preaching a sermon, and the people hearing the sermon simply hate what he has to say, and this is how they respond. Acts chapter 7, verse 57. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And I don't want to suggest that you slow down your lives to begin this sermon because I'm concerned you'll murder me. So instead of starting the sermon that way, I'm going to start this sermon by talking about this picture right here. This is a picture of my son, Frankie, on his fourth birthday. He is a baseball kid, and in my house, we watch a lot of baseball. We're a fan of my hometown team, the Kansas City Royals. And our favorite player is their all-universe catcher, Salvador Perez. We love to watch Salvi hit home runs and win gold gloves. And because Salvi is the catcher, he's our favorite player. My son asked for a full set of catcher's gear on his fourth birthday. And a lot of Fridays, I'll pick him up uh, early from school, and we'll go to the baseball diamond in our neighborhood, and we'll play baseball together. Frankie calls this a baseball date. And he will say, Dad, is today the day we're going on a baseball date? And I'll say, no, that's not for five more days. We kind of just had one a few days ago. But a lot of Fridays, I'll pick him up, we'll go on a baseball date, and we'll play catch, or we'll do some hitting. He can actually hit uh, baseball pretty good. He just turned five, and he really likes to swing the baseball bat. <clears throat> and sometimes he likes to really work on the technical parts of the game. So one week, he said, Dad, today I'm going to work on my choked up swings. Choking up is a technique where you move your hands up the neck of the bat so you can hit with uh, increasing frequency. You can increase your batting average by choking up the bat. And he said he wanted to work on that. And, uh, so for a whole afternoon, he was choking up on the two-foot wooden bat, and I was throwing him real baseballs. And by the end, he was hitting almost all of them. And I got to confess, this was wildly satisfying to me. To watch my son learn something and apply himself and bring passion to it, it was so enjoyable and amazing, it was deeply satisfying to watch my son learn and grow. But it doesn't always go that way during the baseball date. <clears throat> Sometimes it goes a different way and it will begin like this. My son Frankie will say, Dad, when we go on our next baseball date, I want to be the catcher. 
And then during the baseball date, when we show up at the baseball diamond, it's just me and Frankie, and we'll spend a few minutes putting all that gear on him, and then he'll go sit behind home plate, and I'll be throwing him gently some pitches, and he'll be catching them and throwing them back, and then it will happen. As the baseball comes to him, he will freeze and let it pass. And then, in slow motion, he will turn to check the passed ball. And then, in slow motion, he will turn back to me. And then, in slow motion, he will tear the catcher's mask off and dramatically throw it down the first baseline. And then, again, in slow motion, he will turn and dive towards the backstop. Slow motion dive, pretty athletic move. And then, for effect, he'll hit the ground and roll once and grab the baseball. And then he'll come up in slow motion, ready to throw. He'll spot the imaginary runner coming down the third baseline. And he'll go and prepare himself for the collision. And then, in slow motion. He will receive the collision and roll again a few times. And then on the ground, he will feign a moment of unconsciousness. And then he will come to and open his eyes and in slow motion, check the glove and see that the ball is still there. And he recorded the out to end the imaginary game. And in slow motion, he will stand up and cheer in that exact stance that we just saw. And then in slow motion, he will run out to the pitcher's mount and we will celebrate the game that we have just won in his mind. Now, because this is in slow motion, it might take three or four minutes, during which I'm standing alone on the pitcher's mound like this. This is taking forever. And I confess with some deal of shame that in those moments, as cute as it is, that I'm feeling deeply impatient. And here we can already learn something. When I'm feeling satisfied watching my son learn something, I have all the patience in the world. I could stand out there all day. The baseball dates last longer. But when I'm feeling unsatisfied that this is something happening in Frankie's mind, we're not learning anything and I'm just standing here doing nothing. When I'm unsatisfied is when I hurry. We hurry when we are unsatisfied. And as I said, I have to confess some deal of shame that I was unable to enjoy this somewhat magical moment. But over time, that sort of became the norm. This is what every baseball date started to feel like for me. And after a while, I would stand there frustrated on the pitcher's mound by myself. And finally, one week, it was as if I was tapped on the shoulder. And the voice of God said to me, you're missing it. And I had a renewed energy, a renewed focus to be patient and present. And after that, I was really focused on enjoying this magical moment with my son. But I have to confess, I was unable to do it. I could not find within myself a lot of patience for the same play at the plate scenario every single week. It was hard for me to be patient. So a couple of weeks went by where I was trying to be present, I was trying to be patient, and I was failing, and I was feeling quite sad that I was missing out on this moment and could not enjoy it. And it was as if a second time I was tapped on the shoulder, and Jesus seemed to say to me, you're missing it, but you're not missing Frankie, you're missing me. And it occurred to me there on the pitcher's mound, all of the promises in the Bible where Jesus says he is going to be with us. And what I had been missing was not this awesome moment with my kid, but it was the presence of God with us there on the baseball diamond. That's what I was missing. 
And in that moment, it occurred to me that, gosh, I could be uh, mindful of the presence of Jesus with me in this moment. I could be praying for my son and for my family, for our neighborhood, for the San Mateo campus, for Menlo Church. I could be praying for all kinds of things. And then a few weeks later, I realized after kind of weeks or maybe months of struggle and frustration and impatience, I was finding myself enjoying these shared moments between myself and my son and between Jesus who promised to be with us always. In the few weeks leading up to Christmas, we're talking about something that we're calling the gift. The gift is Jesus' presence with us. And we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It's simply a gift. And Christmas is the annual time of year. It is our annual celebration that Jesus keeps coming to us in ways that we don't deserve and can't earn. And that original first Christmas was the once and for all moment that God entered into human life. And so Christmas becomes this celebration that in an undeserved and unearned way, God came to us then, he keeps coming to us now, and the word that we have for that is grace. Last week we saw that grace has a particular definition. Grace is when God's going to do something for us that we don't deserve and can't earn. And when we input different variables into this formula, it becomes quite striking that God loves us in a way that we don't deserve and cannot earn. That he forgives us in a way that we don't deserve and can't earn. And he's present to us in a way that we don't deserve and could never earn. And his coming to us again and again in ways we don't deserve and can't earn, well, that's grace. Last week we saw that there was a Bible word for grace, the Greek word charis, and that this word can be translated either as grace or as gift. And we took a look at some of the well-known passages in the Bible about grace, and we spent some time with them translating this word, not grace, but as gift. And maybe one of the most well-known passages uh, is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. There the Apostle Paul is talking about a suffering in his life. And we don't know if it was uh, an emotional suffering or a bodily one or a circumstantial suffering. But then he talks about grace and we translated it as gift. Here is this passage. Three times he wrote, I pleaded with God to take away my suffering, but God said to me, my gift is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And as we're celebrating the gracious giving of the gift of Jesus' presence, part of what we're celebrating is the promise that the gift will be sufficient for whatever we face. That the presence of Jesus is so strong, it is so life-giving that it is up to the task to help us face any circumstance in human life. And today we're reflecting on how if we want to receive the satisfying gift of Jesus, we're going to have to slow down. And here it is, the two words that we hate most in the Bay Area, slow down. And I especially hate them. I think slowing down is for boring people who have no plan for their life. I'm an exciting person. I have a big plan for my life. And so I have to do everything that I possibly can every single day to complete this ambitious plan that I have for my life so that at the end of my life, I slide out of breath into my grave when I die, having done all these amazing things. That's my plan for my life. I don't want to slow down. I want to hurry up to fit it all in. And yet I've come to believe this, gang. If we're going to receive the satisfying life that Jesus has for us, we're going to have to slow down. 
And it turns out that the life and ministry of Jesus had a slowness to it. That Jesus himself embodied a slow nature. But one example, in John chapter 11, Jesus has received word from his dear friends, Mary and Martha, that their brother Lazarus is sick and is going to die. Of course, Jesus is great friends with Lazarus too, but he responds, Jesus responds in a peculiarly slow way. Chapter 11 of John says this, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And if you're familiar with this story, you know that Lazarus does in fact die. And then Jesus comes to Mary and Martha, arrives in their town at their household, and they say to him, if you had come sooner, if you had hurried, our brother would not have died. And Jesus spends time with them and comforts them and then goes to Lazarus's graveside and there Jesus weeps and then he resurrects Lazarus from the dead. This is a very strange and slow way about going through a life-threatening emergency of a dear loved one. There was a slowness to Jesus's life and ministry. And there was a slowness to Jesus' life because there is a slowness to the character of the God whom Jesus was embodying. The Bible tells us that the fullness of God dwelled in the human being, Jesus, and the God that dwelled fully in the human being, Jesus, went pretty slow. The bulk of the Old Testament is about this God's relationship to the nation of Israel. And in his interactions with the nation of Israel, he is moving quite slow. He instructs them to wander in the desert for 40 years, 40 years of national migration. And then three generations of a united monarchy, Saul, David, and Solomon. And then the the kingdom splits into two and the northern part of the kingdom goes on for 19 generations of kings, 19 kings of Israel. And then generations of priests and prophets and then generations of exile and restoration. All told, a thousand years of history is captured in the majority of the Old Testament. That is a slow way for God to be making his point to the nation of Israel. There was a slowness to the character of God. And of course, the Christmas stories are framed with a a slow bit of detail. The details tell us that this was a slow story. In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul says that when time was fulfilled, Jesus was born to a woman. And this reflects the Christian understanding that between the final book of the Old Testament in Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament in the book of Matthew was 400 years of God waiting in silence for time to be fulfilled. There is a slowness about the Christmas story. And what emerges from this perspective uh, of the life and ministry of Jesus and the character of God and the framing of the Christmas story is that there is a certain kind of God in the Bible, a God who will not be hurried. It is God's nature to move slow. And of course, as I said, here in the Bay Area, we hate moving slow. We hate standing in line. We hate being in traffic. We hate it when our computers update while we're trying to get some work done. We hate going slow. And so we have to ask, given our preference for hurrying, why does God go slow? And the answer to this question, why does God go slow, has a quite simple and quite profound answer. He goes slow because he is love. 
The Bible provides us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 with a quite striking definition of love. And if you've been to a wedding, you've heard it. Here is the first line of this definition. Love is patient. And the Bible is quite insistent elsewhere that God is love. So if God is love and love is patient, it suggests a fundamental association between love and patience. We might say that love requires patience. We might even say that love is slow. To love someone is to experience some slowness, to actually slow down and know them. To love someone is to experience some patience with them. Or conversely, we might say we cannot love if we are hurried. There's a fundamental connection here between love and going slow. In a wide-ranging and quite interesting book called The Three-Mile-An-Hour God, the Japanese theologian Kasuke Koyama says this, God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed. It's an inner speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we're accustomed. It is slow, yet it is lord over all other speeds because it is the speed of love. It goes on in the depths of our lives, whether we notice it or not, whether we're currently hit by a storm or not, at three miles an hour. Because three miles an hour is the speed that we walk, and therefore it is the speed of love that God walks. God goes slow because he loves us. If we've asked, why does God go slow, we have to ask the other question, and it's a somewhat spiritually irritating question. If God is slow, why do we prefer to hurry? So let's talk about that. What is hurry, and why do we do it? Hurry is an emotional state. It is an attitude. It's an inner state. It is something about our spirit. And we often experience this hurry in our mind. Psychologists call this spiraling when your mind is associating things, often negative, one after the other, and you keep going and you don't know how to make it stop. That is the experience of hurry. And it can be possible to experience a busy schedule and a slow spirit. But I think we're going, to suge- uh, we're going to learn along the way that if we slow our schedule down, it'll be much easier to cultivate a slowness of spirit. And after the last person, someone came to me, uh, after the last service, someone came to me and this person said, you know, we often think of slowness as laziness, but that's not what you're describing at all. What you're describing takes a lot of effort. And it's true, if we are mindless and slow, that might be laziness. But if we are slow and mindful of the presence of Jesus, that requires an enormous amount of work to choose slowness, to slow down to God's speed, to choose to walk with him. That's what lies before us. And we could learn to have a busy schedule and a slow spirit, but it is going to help a lot to slow the schedule down as we learn. And that's the gift that God is offering to you and me right now, to slow down. That's what hurry is. Why do we do it? Hurry reflects a deep fear that I don't have enough and I'm not going to be okay. And where does this fear that I don't have enough and I won't be okay come from? Pastor and thinker Rob Bell said quite insightfully, something has always been whispering into the ear of America more. You need more.
And this permeates our world. Everywhere we go, a lot of our relationships, everything we watch on television, all of the ways that we exist in the world, we hear the whispering. Something is always whispering to us. You need more. You don't have this. You should go do that. You need more. There's an omnipresent belief that is so deeply held that the only way to be okay, the only way to be satisfied is if I get more. And it is so omnipresent, it is so deeply held, you might actually say that we have been spiritually formed to believe we will not be okay unless we get more. And here psychologists have termed this the hedonic treadmill, that we were always on the search for more, that each year our vacation has to be better than last year's. And anybody who has been to Disneyland has experienced this. No one could do everything at Disneyland in one day. And so we say, well, we better go to three days, and we should probably go to both parks, and then we do that, and we realize, hey, you could pay more and get in an hour earlier, so we should do that. And they have something called a fast pass. You could optimize the entire experience to get even more. And after we go for three days with the additional hour, and we use the fast pass across two parks, we think that didn't quite scratch the itch. But I saw some people who had a personal escort and a golf cart. They got to cut in every line. It's probably outrageously expensive, but I at least got to kick the tires on the price to see if finally that would be enough to be satisfying at Disneyland. And I know that because that's what I think when I go to Disneyland. The problem of escalating satisfaction, the problem of the hedonic treadmill is each time we find the thing that we thought was going to satisfy, it does in fact not satisfy us. And so what do we do? We try even more of it. And psychologists tell us that each person has a baseline level of happiness, not rooted in their circumstance, but in their character. And that even over time, their circumstance may improve or decline. Almost all people will, over time, return to that base level, baseline degree of happiness or satisfaction. And it tells us that satisfaction isn't rooted in our circumstance. It's rooted in our character. And that means it is ultimately a question of spiritual formation. How satisfied we are is a question of spiritual formation. And I think we are in unique danger here in the Bay Area. If materialism is agreed for material things, hurry is agreed for experience. We are hungry for satisfaction and we look for it in experience. And sometimes it's something amazing like Disneyland, but it can also be satisfaction at work or satisfaction in just marking tasks off of the list. We are looking for satisfaction, so we hurry through our experience to get even more of it. Here in the Bay Area, we are a hungry people. We're at unique risk of living this life on the hedonic treadmill of always needing escalating levels of satisfaction, always struggling, no matter how much, how much our circumstances improve or decline, of always needing more. And when we return to this idea that our satisfaction is not rooted in our circumstance, but in our character, we have to ask, what did we get for all that hurry? What do we get when we hurry? The answer is we don't become more satisfied. What did I get for hurrying my way through the baseball date on the pitcher's mound? I got a less satisfying experience with my son. But when I slowed down my, my life, when I slowed down my thinking, when I slowed down the way I was entering that moment, that is when it became satisfying for me. It is a safe bet that all of us will regret the years and moments that we hurried through. 
And so let us forget for a moment about hurrying. Let us forget about the formula for life that you get more and more and more, and eventually you'll arrive at a place where it is satisfying. That is a formula for an unsatisfying existence. What do we get when we hurry? We get less. But what do we get when we slow down? When we slow down as a spiritual practice, what do we get? We get God. See, God has made a promise to us, and I often think of it as the Christmas promise. In Matthew chapter 1, when Jesus is born, it says they will call him Emmanuel. This word means God with us. And after this boy, God with us, is born, he grows up full of wisdom and he teaches and eventually he is crucified and resurrected and then he ascends to the right hand of God, this position of being all-powerful. And as he does, he says, remember, I will be with you always. That is how the book of Matthew ends with this profound promise, Jesus' final words in the book of Matthew, I will be with you always. And this is the gift offered to us that the satisfying, all-sufficient presence of Jesus is offered to us at every single moment of our lives. And it stands before us to slow down to God's speed and receive the gift. If hurry is a deep conviction that I don't have enough and I need more to be satisfied, slowing down comes from a deep conviction that God is present Here with me as a gift, and that will be enough for me. That's what empowers me to slow down. God's with me. That'll be enough. I can slow down. I don't need more. Whatever circumstances I face, Jesus has promised that his presence will be up to the task of seeing me through it. That's the gift. Now, I don't know your schedule I don't know your work demands. I don't know your family life. I don't know the state of the hurry in your soul. So I don't know what concrete thing to tell you what to do to slow your life down to God's speed and walk satisfyingly with Jesus. But I have a hunch that every single one of us is gonna be, need to be really intentional about slowing down. It won't just happen. It isn't something we accidentally stumble into. It isn't something we discover someday. It's something we're going to have to really think about, apply ourselves to, and make a plan. So I want to invite you, I want to challenge you to make a plan today to slow down this Christmas season and recognize the presence of Jesus with you. A great way to do that, Menlo Meditations, three minutes every morning, weekday morning. Slow your mind down, slow your breathing down. Frame your day as a journey with Jesus. We've also provided all kinds of resources and very concrete to-do lists at menlo.church forward slash advent to experience the slowness that allows us to receive the satisfying gift. I want to challenge each and every one of you, maybe online or in this room or at every one of our campuses, to make a plan today to slow down because we have been given a gift It stands before us with the promise that it and only it will be satisfying. That Jesus will be with us and his presence will be up to the task of seeing us through anything we could possibly face. If we will only slow down and receive the gift, that is my hope for you. 
In a moment, we're going to take communion. At all of our campuses, our campus hosts are about to lead us through it. And if you're online, you might prepare some elements. But we're going to experience a, a different aspect of the gift. The word for grace that can be translated gift is the word charis. And the word that was used to describe communion 2,000 years ago was the word eucharist. It means thank you. If you were given a charis, you would say eucharist. So to take communion, to participate in the Eucharist, is to take the position of a recipient of the gift. When we take communion today, we'll be raising our hand and say, I will receive the gift. That's what we're going to invite you to do wherever you're participating from today. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we lift our lives up to you. And we want to say thank you that you keep coming to us in ways that we don't deserve and could never earn. And God, we... Lift all of our lives up to you. I lift my life up to you, Jesus. Would you give me wisdom and courage to slow my life down? God, would you give my friends here wisdom and courage to slow their lives down and receive your presence in this Christmas season? God, as we stand in line or wait in traffic or clean our homes so that company or family can come over, will you teach us to pray in those moments and to be aware of your presence there with us? Jesus, would you make us people that walk at your speed, knowing that your presence with us will be enough. We love you, Lord, and we offer our lives to you. Amen. As Matt mentioned, after this next song, we're going to celebrate the, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, together. And it's just bread and juice and little vials, but just like when we eat bread, it, it breaks down and it becomes infused. It, it nourishes every single cell and fiber of our being. And in communion, we expect God to enter in and infuse and nourish our, our very soul uh, to the core of who we are. So as we, we sing this next song, Waymaker, uh, we're going to be praying for Christ to, to make a way into our hearts, into our lives in a new way. And this, this supper, this meal, it's not just for members of Menlo Church. It's not just for Presbyterians. Uh, anyone who is a follower of Jesus, if you love Jesus a little bit, you want to learn to love him more. If your faith is small and you want it to grow, if you've known God's grace and you want to know it anew, this meal is for you. Let's prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.